0: It's great if you're new with us today, um, it's great to see you at church. My name's Daniel, I'm part of the team here, and uh, you're obviously not somewhere on the bank holiday. You've been, if like me, gardening. Anyone else been gardening? Yeah. A few people, yes. Anyone very achy today? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am very achy today. Um, We're in the middle of a series um, in the book of Nehemiah from the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, um, if you can turn to Nehemiah chapter two, um, if you kind of cut your Bible in half, you'll probably get to the Psalms and you go left a bit and you will eventually get to Nehemiah. Um, And also, before we do that, Onahili, did you say you've got a job? Did I hear that this week? Yes. Can we just give Onahili a big round of applause? Because that's a big breakthrough. (laughs) Sorry, I meant to say, but I overheard you praising God for that. So um, that's really good news. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter two today and following on um, this teaching series. Donna spoke last week brilliantly. If you haven't heard Donna speak, um, it's up on our YouTube channel, channel Trinity Church London. Just check it out. It's very well worth listening to. Um, Donna was excellent. And now we're picking up the story from chapter two. I want to read a bit and and speak a bit in just a minute. But before we get there, I really want to ask this question. What story are you living in? Just let that sink in for a moment. What story are you living in? Or what story do you think you are living in. There's a national level story that's going on, there's an international level story on, but that's going on. But what about the big story of humanity? What kind of story do you think you are living in? Alistair McIntyre in his book After Virtue said this, I cannot answer the question, what ought I do, unless I first answer the question of what story am I a part? So he says, I can't answer the question, what should I do with my life? What should I do next week until I understand what story am I living in? I think most people today would say the story that we are living in goes something like this there was a big bang at some point that happened in the past that scientists today are still trying to figure out how it all came about then humanity evolved from very simple beings to who we are today and there's this evolutionary process that's going on and that the universe at the moment is kind of slowly expiring entropy is breaking into the universe and one day at some point we don't know because of the sun or something everything will eventually break down and become nothing in the meantime My life is around 70 or 80 years in this story that we're living in and I might get 70 80 years maybe 90 if I'm lucky and then I die and then I become mulch and it's nothing it's blank that's it therefore the purpose of my life is to eat drink and be merry while I may and whatever your thing is if that's the thing that makes you merry, then you go as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. you be married because you've got 70 years. That's it. And then it's nothing. Then it's game over. This is the story that a lot of people are living with. That's one story. The Christian story is radically different. The Christian story says there was a God who was pre-existent before all time, holy and infinite in his joy in himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, perfect community. And out of this abundant joy in God himself, he creates the heavens and the earth so that he might multiply the joy in his own glory. And so he creates a world that demonstrates his glory and he creates human beings so that we might take joy in the glory of God. And us in our stupidity decided that we would like to do things our own way and we would prefer to have the choice of what we did with our life and walk away from infinite joy joy and say I'd rather just make my own choices in this life and what happens is we end up with a fractured broken and dark uncertain world that we are still living in the ramifications of today and yet God didn't leave us In this dark place He chose in his infinite mercy To come down in the form of Jesus Christ As a man And come on a rescue mission To take us out of darkness And bring us back into the light Of the joy in his glory So that we might all one day Be restored into this relationship with him And as he does that He is bringing about a reconciliation And a harmony And the Hebrew is called shalom Across the whole face of the earth So that one day The end of our history History will not be nothingness and darkness and destruction but actually perfect healing and perfect beauty restored to creation and we will all one day live in a beautified glorified creation forever and ever and ever the reason why we love a happy ever happy everlasting tale is because it's actually true there is an echo of this in every story because actually it's a thing that we are living apart. Mm-hmm. And so how you think you're living and what story you think you're living in will radically affect the life you live, won't it? Mm-hmm. And I would think deep down, all of us want to live part of a, something bigger. HSBC, if you've seen at the moment, one of their advertising campaigns is we are not an island, we are part of something bigger. And I know it's like tapping into the whole Brexit thing, things, but it's also tapping into something deep in our psyche that knows deep down life cannot just be about a small little thing about me and my wants. And we have a choice, every single one of us here today, whether we choose to live as a big part in a small story or whether we choose to lesser ourselves and become a small part in a big story. Some of us choose to be a a big fish in a small pond. So actually, I'd rather that and live a small story. And what Nehemiah does in this moment here is that Nehemiah comes to realize that if he's going to make a difference in his world, he is going to lesser himself to be part of this bigger story. And as he does so, he has this incredible impact in his generation. And what we find out is that Nehemiah changes the course of history. When we first launched Trinity Church London, um, Janet Hollis, who was a prophet, came amongst us. And she said, one of the things she said was that there would be men and women who would arise from this church of influence. Men and women who would make a difference in our generation. And that's something we are longing for and praying for and seeking, and it's us in this place. It's not someone else, you know, it's, not that it, it's us now. The men and women who would arise, who would make a difference, and who would be known as those who changed the course of history. And it might have just been moments here, trajectories there, degrees there, but us together, add that by those who will come to join us, add that by decades, and then you never know what will happen. And what I'm praying now as we go through this study in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah's would arise amongst us. Men and women who know there is a holy calling, there's a holy ambition to do something more than just live for myself and then die. Actually to live for a bigger story that says there is beauty and healing at the end. And I want to live and lean into that. Amen. Amen. So I want to pray for us, if that's all right. I want to pray for every single one of us in this place. So let's just stop for a moment because... For me, I don't want to just speak words in these moments. I I want the Holy Spirit to be just changing, illuminating. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come and brood over us, that this wouldn't be words just for a moment, but that you would open up new vision, that you would unlock destiny today, that you would uh, reveal a new path for somebody, Lord, something that you have already put in someone's heart, would you reveal it to them? Lord, let them know what's already, what you've already put in their heart. Lord, would you help us recognize your hand upon us, Lord, when you're with us. And from this place, from this study, Lord, would you inspire men and women to go from here to do great things, I pray. Amen. 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 It's hard for us to understand as non-Jewish men and women, the impact of the ransacking of Jerusalem on the psyche of Israel. It's hard for us to understand the kind of, the depth of emotions that they felt towards the city of Jerusalem. At least four things meant that it was deeply embedded in their heart and in their psyche. The first thing was this, that. Three times a year, it was expected that at least the males and preferably the whole families would travel to Jerusalem and stay for a festival for a week. And they would be there, they would celebrate God, they would be together, they would reconcile with families, they would come together, they would eat. It was a time of celebration three times a year. And if you as a child have been anywhere regularly, you will know the accumulation of very precious memories that begin to grow and get associated with a place. Our family, we went to Pembrokeshire um, quite regularly, most years, I think, and uh, we used to go to this little place, Little Haven, um, and my uncles now bought a place on the same spot, and we'd go there every year because my mum and my mom and, not my dad my mom went there every year and my grandparents went there every year and it's become a very and i took the kids there last year and even driving down the small narrow roads you, you kind of get closer to the place and all these sudden you know all the memories of being a child all come flooding back and we've a lot of us have got those places and we place we like if i go back there suddenly all these happy fun fond memories are come flooding back for every Is- israelite Jerusalem would have been that place because they would have gone time and time again as children meeting cousins and cousins. And I'm not sure if you're a cousin, but you're kind of family now that kind of like. And they were just this family thing grew up and they would get reunited. And all the exploits would happen and God would meet them there. And all the stories would be told and anecdotes would be retold and retold. And old uncles and grandpas would tell the same stories again and again. And it became part of their psyche. And secondly, that the only place that you were going to have your sins atoned for was in the city of Jerusalem. The only place that they could have their family sins atoned for was in the center, in the temple in Jerusalem. You could have other sacrifices made outside of Jerusalem, but the one thing that you couldn't do is get your sins atoned for. That had to happen in Jerusalem. It wasn't just a fond place of where we used to holiday. This is where our lives are restored back to God. And it's where God's presence chose to dwell. God, by his Holy Spirit, chose to say, I'm going to live in this temple in Jerusalem, not in the nations at this point, in this place, in the temple. This is where I'm going to dwell. And this is where I'm going to say that I am with you. This was the sign that the Lord is with us. Everything is going to be okay. And then we're told that God is going to promise a ruler who would descend from David, who would live not just for a few decades, but forever. Listen to this promise. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that is, for my glory, and I will establish his throne in, of, the, of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever and that's not like a literal like millennial like oh the bus took forever to come that's an actual God guarantee promise this leader is going to rule forever and there is one in the line of David who's gonna sit on this throne. So imagine the psychological damage to find out that the Assyrians have come through and ransacked the city and deported hundreds and thousands of the Jewish people out from Jerusalem. And then again, the second wave of when the Babylonian army come through and ransacked the city again and destroyed the city walls, the kind of psychological damage that would have done to the people as they wonder, where is God? You promised, where is your glory? Where is your presence? Are you still with us? Are the promises true? Is there gonna be a ruler who's gonna sit on the seat of David, which is where? In the heart of Jerusalem. Is all of this true, God? Or should we just walk away from this moment? And what seems to have happened is that the people of Israel at this point had come to settle with the status quo. They had essentially come to recognize, basically, this is it. The city's in ruins, potentially the promises of God are in ruins, and this is how life's going to be. And they had settled down just to live this humdrum, mediocre life, and not particularly bothering about whether it's going to come true or not. Because no one was doing anything about the city of Jerusalem. And yet one man, Nehemiah, comes and changes the course of history for the Jewish nation. And what I want to do from these verses in chapter two is just learn five things and I'm going to be brief. I said that last time and I looked at the YouTube video and I wasn't brief. I (laughs) promise I'm going to be brief. The first thing I want to... Men like Nehemiah you want to learn from, right? Like you think this guy changed the course of history. We can learn some things from him. So let me take five things we're going to learn from him. The firstly is this. God will use your current situation not the one that you wish for so the end of chapter one he says this now I was cupbearer to the king Get this. This is the journal of someone who changed history. And yet he takes a very deliberate sentence to tell us of his job description. And you think, why is this relevant when the whole story is about the walls of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the promises of God? Why do we need to know about you being a cupbearer? Very deliberately does he record this because God uses his exact current situation as the means by which he changes the course of history. Many of us wish for a better job or a different job or more free time or something else with our life or some different relationships around us that would enable us and free us to really pursue the things of God and really what's in our hearts. And what we need to reconcile with is the fact that God wants to use your current situation to use you. Life will be changed around you through you right now. He had a very ordinary secular job, if you will, working as a cupbearer to the king. I mean, he was quite a high standard job but it was a normal job he had requirements he had a boss he had difficulties and yet he saw this was the means which with God was going to use him and there was an opportunity in the workplace to do something quite incredible that's the first thing don't wish away your time now this is the current situation that God wants to use you in amen Secondly, I told you I was going to go fast. If you're going to be used by God, if you want to do something incredible in life, you need to pray and plan and plan and pray and then pray and plan some more and then plan and pray, etc. You get the point. Chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, so this is a hundred days since Nehemiah has heard about the walls. A hundred days later, he records this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on earth, a dictator at this point, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. At this point he'd only been sad in prayer to God. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And, and you've got to say, this is probably a very dangerous moment for Nehemiah. It, it was his role to re- serve the, the wine. And it wasn't his role to bring in his home family life into the work situation. This was a dictator who could have had you killed at the snap of a finger. We don't know which way this is going. And for some, for whatever reason, probably Nehemiah, I would imagine was tired at this point. And it's interesting you know, Theresa May crying at the end of her speech. I'm guessing she's probably cried quite a lot in private. And at this moment, it suddenly just spills out into the public. Maybe this is a Nehemiah moment. He's done so much and maybe he's tired and suddenly, for whatever reason, he allows his demeanor to slip into the public sphere. And the king recognizes and there is this precarious moment. What happens? Then I was very much afraid and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. He respects the king. Why? Should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This is brave. He's been praying for an opportunity and suddenly he sees the door of opportunity has just opened by a chink. And basically what he does, as far as I can tell, is he gets his elbow and he jams the door open as hard as he can to see what will happen. Maybe God is in this moment. And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? Give him an inch. This guy takes another mile. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let her to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me incredible moment so he gets this little chink in the door of opportunity and he jams it open and what has Nehemiah clearly been doing for these hundred days he hasn't just been praying back to the promises of God he's been praying back to God the promises and then strategizing and planning and deciding what is this going to take I would imagine in prayer and in fasting he's been going, God what do I need if this is going to happen what is it going to require to see these walls built he doesn't just pray passively he prays actively engaging all of his leadership skills and thinking and it's hilarious he gets to this point the king says what are you requesting and basically he says I'm really glad you asked I've got this list and it's like this is what I'm after he'd like I'd like you to help me relocate I'd like to leave my job if that's all right and I'd like you to pay my wages to go and help serve a city you don't actually like I'd like some letters from you to pave the way so if anyone asks I've got your authority oh and by the way I would like you to foot the bill for all the timber. I would like everything. If you could give me a letter, I'm just going to go and take all the... And I'd like this amount of time off. You're like, unbelievable. And yet he noticed there was a moment in God that he took. Why? Because he had been planning. So when the moment came... He didn't just like oh nothing. I'm just sad today. I'm just tired. Whatever. I'll get a rest. I'm very sorry. And you know he didn't miss the moment. He was planning and he was thinking through, so that when the moment came, he was ready. There can there is a, a psychologists talk about this thing called learned helplessness, and you probably come across it. Sometimes what can happen in life is that so many things bad happen to you. And it can happen to whole cultures and whole communities. So many things, waves after waves of bad things happen that you eventually give up thinking that what you do in life can make a difference. So you just end up living with this, like, what it is around you. You say, actually, I'm not gonna change much. I could try, but I won't. And whole communities sometimes live with this kind of learned helplessness. This is just the way it is. Sometimes churches get into this place After wave after wave of decline Decade after decade after decade The only thing is just prayer And it's just like We're just going to stay faithful And we're not going to reflect or think Or try and change We're just We're the faithful ones We're going to pray And sometimes this can creep in Sometimes learned helplessness Can get baptised into Christian theology They say well, what, what, How's it going in your life? Ah oh, it's okay what, what, what plans are you making? Um, trust trusting God What's going on? You know, you got those dreams you told me about last year. Has anything moved on? I'm just praying, as though just praying was it. And sometimes, if you've got a strong Calvinistic sovereign God. And you think, well, God is in control of everything. It's only one more step to say, like, I'm praying, I'm trusting God, and he will do the stuff. What Nehemiah teaches us is that those who have a fierce understanding of the sovereignty of God are also often the ones who have the most get up and go and say, we're going to make this happen. Because how does God love to do stuff? Not apart from us, but through us. Philippians 2.13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Do something, get on with your salvation as the Lord works in you to perfect everything. So how is he going to perfect the mission of God in this city? It's going to be through us planning, thinking, bringing all of our skills together and going for it in prayer, trusting him. So we trust God and we hustle. Amen? Amen. (laughs) All right. Thirdly, vision requires sacrifice. Verse nine. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem. And I'll just stop there. Having a vision for something in your life, you want to make a difference in this world, without a willingness to sacrifice means that your vision will always stay as a nice idea, and that will be it. That was a, I had a nice idea when I was 25. I remember it. But without a willingness to sacrifice something, some time, some finances, some energy, sometimes to have some criticism railed at you, without a willingness to let go of something vision will always remain just a nice idea the moment that vision becomes something that creates a difference in this world is the moment that people who hold that vision are willing to sacrifice whatever it might be and sometimes everything to see it fulfilled and this is Nehemiah in this moment because firstly the first moment he steps out to do something outside of the blue he, the first thing he receives is criticism there are people against him have you ever had that moment you've got these burning ideas and you share with someone and the first thing that comes back you expect people to applaud you and say like, I can't believe you want to help others the first thing is people like pouring cold water and saying why would you want to be doing that, are you... whatever are you are... this is what he receives, firstly criticism and the second thing is that he does is something amazing you see, he lets go of everything that he has that is of privilege to live in the, the ruins of the city. Imagine Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He lives in the best, um, in, in the, in the best place, the palace. He wears the best clothes, he eats the best foods he has a high position he would be regarded as wealthy, had access and privilege everywhere he would have walked around the empire at that stage he would have had men helping him, surround. Him. he would have walked around people would have recognised this is one of the king's officials and yet he is willing to let go of all of that privilege and status and let go of it and travel, we're told, for two months This isn't like four hours British Airways. This is two months walking through essential desert land and to live in Jerusalem, a city without any financial structures at this point, decimated. He had to build his own house there. There is nothing by the way of infrastructure that is helpful to the city. And he says, I'm willing to let go of all of that to go and be with my people and to see them thrive because he knows if this vision is going to come about it's going to require sacrifice on his behalf and there are many many people who live with burning ideas in their heart and their mind and decades pass without everything anything ever happening because they're not willing to pay the sacrifice I was never willing to adjust my course never willing to change my diet, never willing to let go of that hobby never willing to let go of that finance even that lifestyle because to see this thing happen The men and women that we now celebrate, always when you look back in their past, there was a moment when they left some form of privilege. There was a moment where they left some form of comfort and they lived with discomfort. For some, it's very simply just doing something that's out of the ordinary. For some of you, you've become a Christian, it's this big step of faith, and as you became a Christian, you thought you would be applauded for taking a step with God, and, take, and actually, people are questioning and trying to pull water and criticizing you for making this step with Jesus. That's part of the cost. You see a vision of God and you go for it, and there's cost involved. And Nehemiah counted the cost, and he still went. And then we read this, he got to Jerusalem, And he was there three days. Probably what we can discern is he took three days to rest. This is a long, tough journey. And then after three days of rest, probably he gets up and he starts to inspect the city walls. At this point, he hasn't even seen the walls. He's just heard of it. So he has to start making plans about these walls. And so he says in verse 12, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me. With me but the one on which I rode I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate they had cool names for the cities in those days and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire and then I went on to the fountain gate and to the King's pool but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned and the officials did not know where i had gone or what i was doing and i had not yet told the jews the priests the nobles the officials and the rest who were to do the work here's the fourth point and it's a nuanced point nehemiah does not share his vision too early with the wrong people he makes a very deliberate point that he does not share the vision with those who are actually going to be doing the work too early. And there is a risk whenever you're kind of like got a burning passion for something, the first thing you want to do is tell people about it. You want to share it, tell people, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'd love to do, that I've got this new burning idea, I saw this thing, this need arose, whatever it might be, but that might be the worst thing to do in that moment. Because Nehemiah, he had takes a hundred days to mature his vision in prayer and fasting, contemplating, thinking, strategizing. And then even when he gets to see the walls for himself, he still says, I'm going to withhold the vision. Imagine he, all these Jews arrive and there's their fellow Jewishmen come arrived. And he's actually now working for the king, Artaxerxes. And he's got all these noblemen around me. You know, if I were one of the Jews who were in Jerusalem at this point in the rubble, I would be thinking, why have you arrived? So he, at some moment, he must have said, I, for, I can't tell you right now, but I will. He, he holds it in his heart. He says, I need to do some more exploration. I need to solidify the plan. I need to know if the thoughts and plans that I have already laid down in my heart are going to work in reality. And so he goes ahead before he then goes back to bring some people with him. He thinks through the permutations, the opportunities, the difficulties, before he then goes to the people who are actually gonna do the work. Some of you have already got to that point when you've had this burning idea and you've shared it, maybe with the wrong person at the wrong time. And you've just had cold water poured on the idea, and you remember like, oh yeah, I did have that thought back there because it was too early. Jesus withhold told even himself in John 2 24 he says he did not give himself to man because he knew what was in man He knew that if he revealed his vision too early for what his life was actually about to suffer and die That the people wanted to take his life in a totally different direction So you see this careful management of Jesus continually throughout of his identity and his actual vision And only at the right time towards the very end does he go very explicit and say this is why I've come and I'm going to die And they still don't get it. But he knows there is enough built up prayer and maturity now in his father that nothing that comes from the devil or humanity is going to persuade him from this course and suffer and die for the sins of humanity. So there are times and seasons where if there's something burning in your heart, you've got to journal, you've got to mature it and soak it in prayer, you've got to fast, you've got to seek God, you've got to do your plans. And then at the right time, find the right people who you know you can dream with and say, this is what I'm beginning to think about. What do you think? This is the response and it's amazing. This is verse 17. Then I said to them, let me just stop there just imagine for nehemiah this is like almost half a year back now he has probably been imagining this moment for a long time the moment when i actually have to stand before the people of israel those who are going to do the work and try and persuade them that after generations of leaving the city in turmoil and decimated after generations of leaving the gates destroyed i am going to be the one to lead a renewal of the city and we are going to actually make this thing work probably learned helplessness had just creeped into the city at this point. This is what it is. Imagine him, I would imagine him fretful nights sometimes thinking, what if I lay it all on the line for them and they say, nah, <laughs> no thanks we're just going to get on with our everyday life it's like everything, he's laid his job on the line, he's laid his reputation on the line with King Artaxerxes, what does he do now is left in limbo and yet here he is in this moment and he says this you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, like in anything, you imagine some people are rolling their eyes, Who's this, like hopeful coming Johnny come lately, who does he think he is with his king 's horsemen and stuff like we 've been like this for ages, He thinks he can come in, and three days later he 's going to like do, do like, all of these reactions, and so he knows he 's going to have to plug in all of his credibility and he 's going to have to persuade them that this is something of the Lord he 's going to have to persuade them God is in this. So where does he go? I told them of the hand of my God. That is the activity of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So where does he go to try and persuade? He said, you need to know some credibility. I understand that. Let me show you what God has already done in my life and that will persuade you that this is God's plan for our city at this moment in our culture, in our generation. And he goes back to say that the king has spoken all of these words to me. And so he recounts, look, the Lord is upon my life and on us right now because the king who doesn't believe in Yahweh has, look, he has allowed me to relocate. He is paying for my finances. He has sent men with me to protect me on the journey. He is giving us all the timber that we need. Look how the Lord is even moving to see an unbelieving king allow God's people and our city to be restored. And what we're told is they all applaud say, Incredible. But here's the fifth point your faith journey will not look like someone else's faith journey because Nehemiah goes back and says this is evidence of the hand of the Lord he says King Artaxerxes has given us all of this stuff surely this is the moment we have all the resources given to us by the most powerful man on earth right now and yet when you contrast that with Nehemiah's contemporary probably his friend Ezra Ezra does exactly the opposite. It's fascinating. If you turn back with me a couple of pages to Ezra, just literally like three or four pages to Ezra chapter eight. This is what Ezra says when he says, this is evidence that the hand of the Lord is upon me. Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there. And at the river ahava that we might humble ourselves before our god to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves our children and all our goods so they're traveling back to jerusalem and ezra says let's pray to god that he might protect us as we go what is a very dangerous journey Isn't that fascinating? So Ezra sees the hand of the Lord in the fact that we prayed to God and we didn't take any help from anyone else. And look, the Lord, only the Lord directly looked after us. And we got here safely. And Nehemiah says, the Lord of the hands is upon us because the king, Archdiocese, basically opened the floodgates and gave us everything. Because everyone's faith journey is going to look different. And I I don't know, I'm just like making stuff up now, but I wonder whether Nehemiah and Ezra, you know, they must have had a discussion about this. When Nehemiah enters town and is like, look, I've got all of these horsemen. Ezra like, well, maybe, Shouldn't you have been praying and demonstrating that our God protects us? I would imagine they would have had some like, these are like type A alpha male leaders. They're like, they got passionate views about stuff. And they're like, surely you should have done this. No, I did this. Look, God opened up his hand. Look, this is what happened. And yet, who's right? Both of them. Some people won't understand your faith journey. You do, because you're walking it and it will look different to others. Some of you have heard of Barnardo's because they still look after children in care to this day. Thomas Barnardo's was a contemporary with a guy called George Muller. And they both lived in the 1800s. They were both Christians. They were both leaders. They both had a vision to help what at that time, and still is in many ways, a crisis of young children being orphaned and care being needed to give to them and so both of these men in the 1800s, very similar, very similar ages, contemporaries with a very similar vision to the same thing and a very similar strategy to build orphanages they both had a huge impact, Thomas Barnardus by the end of his life had served 60,000 children and put them on their feet and sent them out into uh, the, the world, incredible George Muller had served about 10,000 children and he had established uh, I think at the time of his death there were about 120,000 children in schools that George Muller had been directly involved in establishing an incredible influence in their generation and yet on the surface they looked so the same but their faith journey as both Christians looked radically different because their approach was different. So Thomas Bernardo's—he, by all accounts, he was an activist. It seems like he was super good at marketing. He was good at promotions. He, and he worked every single angle that he could. If there was a loan to be had, he would take it. If there was a bank offering money, he would take the loan. And he got himself into a lot of debt at points. Because he said this, I believe God has called me to care for the children of this nation. And if there's a child in front of me that needs help, and if there's a bank that's offering to loan me money, then I'm going to take that money and do what I can and trust God and then build something around this to help and serve this child. And by the end of his life, he was in a lot of debt, but he was so well um, recognized and his ministry was so well re- received by the nation that the government bailed out the whole of Bernardo's, so that it might be put on an even keel and be established for generations to come. And it's still going to this day. They recognize this as a thing that is serving the nation. And so they paid off all the debts, so that it would con- continue going. Incredible. George Muller, on the other hand, made a principled decision at the very start of his ministry that he would not ask anyone for a penny. He says, I'm trusting the Lord that this is his work and I'm gonna pay for everything, I'm gonna pray for every penny to come in. And sometimes there'll be stories of him praying, there'll be an orphanage, and he did not know where food was gonna come from because he wasn't gonna ask anyone for a penny, he was gonna trust God. And stories of people delivering checks, delivering food in the immediate moment where the children needed. So who's right? (laughs) your faith journey is going to look different. Mm -hmm. So don't be worried when people ask you or say, why, "Why are you doing it like that?" Why, that doesn't look quite right. That's not how I did it in my part. You've got to learn. By the end of the day, it's you and Jesus and your conscience and the Holy Spirit. You've got to walk, and sometimes it's going to look odd. Amen. Some of us, when we became Christians, you think, "I became a Christian," and people are like, looking at me, like, "This is and why you? This is odd. Like, why can't you just stay vaguely spiritual? Why are you having to define it as Jesus now?" People are like, "Surely you should check." This is my journey with Jesus now. We can't put anyone in a box. So what happens? The response is this. Let me go back to Nehemiah here. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me just read this response. They said to him, let us rise up and build. Phew! (laughs) Phew! Imagine Nehemiah's relief at this point Like unbelievably Like he's journaling later that evening They actually said they wanted to do it This is going to happen And what we're told Miracle of miracles that 52 days later 52 days later The walls are restored And the gates are rebuilt What does that mean? That the Jewish people's identity Is maintained That there will be a Jewish remnant That will be restored back to Jerusalem that the temple will be protected that there will be a place where God who has promised to dwell the temple will remain because if the temple goes what does that mean for the presence of the Lord that means there is still sins that can be atoned for that means that the Jewish people will remain as a people that means that generation to generation the Jewish heritage will be passed on until one young boy was born 400 years later two A Jewish woman, a young boy called Jesus, who was called Jesus because he was going to save people, not from decimated walls, but from sin. And this Jesus grows up and just like Nehemiah knows the big story that we are living in that is started by God and that will end with God in beauty and healing. And he weeps over Jerusalem and not the walls of Jerusalem now, but the people of Jerusalem. He is broken hearted for the state of the spiritual state of the men and women in this city and across the nations. And he guards the vision carefully like Nehemiah, knowing that what he is to do is going to take careful managing of those around him with God his Father. And he willingly takes on the sacrifice, not just to leave a palace to go to Jerusalem, but to leave eternal glory in heaven to live in this dirty, anxious, fearful, dark, and fractured world amongst us and suffer with us. And suffer all the way to the point of going to a cross and die on a cross for our sins so that our lives might be rebuilt, so that hope might be restored in human hearts, so that forgiveness might be given to us, so that shame might be washed away. So not just that physical culture is built, but that human lives are actually renewed from within. Jesus Christ dies for this, suffers, and then on the third day, hallelujah, rises from the dead to see everyone given hope in his glory. amen Amen. and jesus even to this day is now ascended on high to the right hand of the father and is establishing this great story that is being worked out across the nations to this day the end of our history is beauty and glory amen it's wonderful it is not darkness and mulch and if we believe that our calling as a church and as individuals is to lesser ourselves to play our part in this big story. To ask ourselves, what is God putting in my heart to do to build towards the end of this story of hope and healing and beauty? What has the Lord put in your heart? That's like a rhetorical question that I want you to answer in your heart, okay? What has the Lord put in your heart? It might be something you consider small. I've got this workplace and I've got a passion to do X I've got this gift and I want to do Y I've got this amount of time and I want to do this I've got this people group and I want to see this happen What has God put in your heart? That will get birth like Nehemiah like Jesus in prayer by recognizing it, by being willing to count the cost to adjust your course, to recognize that your calling is going to be different to the person next to you's calling. And if, just imagine if every single one of us said, I'm going to get hold of some burning vision in my heart and I want to take a step towards it. Not knowing what might happen on the other side. That's how Trinity Church London was birthed, wasn't it? That we got together and we said, we're going to start a community in central London and we do not know what God is going to do. And we see the beginnings of bricks being placed wall to wall to see the, what could God do with you? It's exciting, I think. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Charles. Shall we just pray for a moment if the band could come back up? Let this question just settle in your heart. What has God put in your heart? Some of you may never even have thought of this question. You just think I do what I do. What has God put in your heart? How is God going to use your current situation, your family, your friends, your home, your workplace, your time that you have that is off, that is free at your discretion, your finances with your situation? What good could God do? And would we be those people who would dare to dream a dream and take a step towards it? Father, I thank you so much for Nehemiah. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit that met this willing heart to birth holy ambition for the city of Jerusalem. Lord, I know this room is filled with holy ambition for this city, Lord. I pray that you would clarify vision. Lord, I pray where people have sat on ideas and vision and not done anything about it. Lord, if this is the right moment, if this is the opportune moment, if this is the moment with King Artaxerxes, would you release them, I pray? Would there be an action, even this afternoon, towards it, even the smallest moment? Some of you, I feel, need to send a text just to get the ball rolling, because it might be just the simplest thing to send a text to say, can I meet with you? Because I need to, just to air a dream that I've sat on for decades, maybe. Some of you need to go away and you need to carve away some time in prayer to say, Lord, is this of you? And is it, if it is, would you show me the timings and the strategy and what I might be able to do? The person, it might be a person before you. It might be someone who you've wanted to share Jesus with and the good news of Christ with for a long time and you've just never got around to it. Never been quite the moment. Come before God and pray that he might open up an opportunity. And when it comes, you can barge it open. We have infinite joy on offer for London, it's amazing. Thank you, Lord. Shall we stand together? Just as we lift our hearts to God, use this time as singing, as just reflection and just bringing your heart towards Him. You might already be in the middle of a process of walking by faith, and you know you're, in, you're, you're halfway down the track and now you're nervous. And you wonder, should I go back to the palace? It's not too late for me to pull back and think, okay, not, nothing too much lost. Maybe you need a a recognition of the story that the end is going to be healing and beauty at the end of our story. That's what everything's building towards. So just a download of faith again. Be with us, I pray, as we respond now. In Jesus' name.